This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney on this Halloween week. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well. You know me, I'm always excited to talk about a few of my favorite things, uh, Christianity, politics and the intersection thereof uh but i had a pretty good week we had a really good uh a meeting or event the end campaign did called the church and race and so we had a lot of people out here in atlanta come out of very let's say you just bought a house bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents you'll proudly mow the lawn ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn tell people to stay off the lawn compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Diverse crowd and had a really great conversation. So it was a good ending to the week and I'm ready to get to it. That's awesome. So what was what did that event look like? Uh, You guys did it in Atlanta, but what was kind of the what was kind of the setup and the goal of it? Yeah, so the goal was this, you know, it's called The Church and Race, uh, a tough conversation about discipleship. And really what we wanted to show people was that this whole conversation does come back to discipleship and we're not going to get through it if we have chips on our shoulder, if we put our defense mechanism up. So what we did, Uh me, Show Baraka and some other brothers, uh, we really had a tough conversation. So we had about three speakers who did, you know, TED Talk type speeches. And then we had a... um, panel of of pastors, a mixed group yeah. of pastors who really just talked about their experiences and had that tough conversation. And it was good. You know, it was one of those family conversations and in family conversations, sometimes they're not pleasant, but if you know where they're coming from, then you can right. appreciate what, what's coming out. And I, those are the kind of conversations I believe we're going to have to have as a Christian community to lead on this race issue because it's, it's well past time that we took the lead to, to heal the nation in that regard. Yeah, and right, it's more than just uh, getting people to, you know, parrot out the right talking points. 
Because oh, yeah. I, I, I found just a lot gets hidden that way. What's really needed and what what I heard, not just from you, but I've heard from folks that attended the event is uh, you, you were digging under that a little bit and getting to some real talk, which I think is, is really important. Oh, yeah, we went in. We, we went all yeah. the way in. But, yeah. but we did it with the right spirit, right? We went right. all the way in. Right. But at the end of the day, we said you have to be aspirational. If you're, and if you're not aspirational, yeah. you're not going to be part of the solution. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling aspirational uh, uh, this week. I was at Wheaton, uh, up, uh, you know, outside of Chicago. I uh, did an event, was hosted by Vince Baco. But, um, man, if I could be on a college campus once a week, I think I'd be happier. I think I'd just be feeling better about things because those students are just incredible. Uh, I got to meet one-on-one with some students. Uh, the students that attended my event uh, always ask earnest questions, always ask intelligent questions. Uh, and I just had a real good time. And then, uh, you know, obviously got to spend time with Vince Baco, author of The Political Disciple, which is an incredible book. Also got to meet um, uh, Ray Chang, uh, who wrote that uh, uh, the Christianity Today article uh, that sort of played out the conversation uh, that Lecrae and John Piper were having and, and Ray's article kind of kind of blew up. And so it was incredible meeting that, that brother and getting to spend some time with him. And uh, he's he's a real he's a real deal for sure. So, yeah, we, uh, it sounds like we both had had good weeks. We're both feeling good. Yeah, the the spirit is moving and we we got something. We have a lot of work to do, but I, I feel like we're going to get some things done in the in the near future. So I'm ready, ready yeah. to see it happen. Well, you know, Justin, sometimes these transitions work uh, a little uh, too well, and it seems like uh, uh, someone might be uh, not having such a good week coming up. Uh, mm. We record this podcast on uh, on Sunday. It's reported that as early as Monday, uh, the first uh, charges will be filed in special counsel special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into uh, uh, Russia and. Uh, uh, collusion with uh the trump campaign um and uh this this thing has blown up again over the last week not only with um uh questions that the first charges will be filed and lord knows if Mueller is going to file charges uh it means he has a pretty uh pretty good pretty good case uh but also the the dossier has come back the infamous dossier from the from the campaign that allegedly had uh, you know, significant dirt on the Trump campaign that uh, potentially would open him up to blackmail. The dossiers come back and it's come back because the, the uh, people have followed the money and found uh, that not just uh, uh, Democrats have funded it and, a, and a, a lawyer that was associated with the Clinton campaign, um, but Republicans have funded it, particularly uh, and reportedly uh, Marco Rubio's campaign and people associated with Marco Rubio. And so, you know, we're we're 10 months into the uh, Trump administration, nine, 10 months in, and uh, he has not been able to get rid of uh, these Russia stories. Uh, and if Mueller indeed does file charges, it's it's going to be significant. Do, do you. Yeah, is this still a situation for you where it's like where there's smoke, there's fire, or does does Mueller filing charges make it that way, or kind of how are you processing all this? It's tough. It's a lot going on. 
So one of the things that you said earlier, which I think you were completely correct, is we've held back some of our opinion on this until we got the facts. So I'm hoping this allows us to get closer to the facts. I think that's the best way to go about it. I'm still trying to decide if that's going to happen or not. Now, CNN was the first to report that the federal grand jury in Washington on Friday had approved uh, the first charges in the investigation led by special counsel uh, Robert Mueller. Uh, But the New York Times and a few other sources uh, said they haven't been able to to affirm it. And they said that explicitly. So they usually don't say that explicitly unless they think this may not happen or there there might be some information that's not completely uh, accurate. So we'll have right. to see what happens. I'm hoping we're getting towards having some answers. Uh, as you mentioned as well, uh, the Washington Post reported that the DNC and the Clinton campaign actually commi- com- uh, commissioned the dossier, which was basically a, r- a report that was full of Russian intelligence and maybe even misinformation about Donald Trump. Um, right. So in that report, uh, what the Washington Post said was that apparently payments were made via some law firm um, to an opposition research or what we call oppo research outfit called Fusion GPS. Now, this yep. Fusion GPS group then hired a British spy. This gets deep. They hired a British spy who put together information um, that was received from the Kremlin. That's Russia from a Kremlin connected group. Man, you're talking about a tangled web. Uh, this right. is getting a little bit crazy. The, the Washington, the, the Wall Street Journal, uh, rather, their editorial board had a fairly provocative article that came out after that, saying that, again, Democrats had paid for a report put together by the Russians, and then they tried to hide their role. So apparently, right. Deputy Watchman Schultz, uh, uh, several of the Clinton advisors uh, told investigators or they denied that they knew anything about this arrangement. But if you look at the arrangement, the Wall Street Journal is saying somebody knew something and someone's not being as honest as they should be. So two of the Fusion GPS founders have actually invoked uh, the fifth, their Fifth Amendment rights to avoid answering the investigators' questions. So to answer your question, Brother Weir, this looks like quite a bit of smoke and it's coming from the left and the right. Uh, this should be interesting. And, you know, I I saw and it's, you know, it's kind of been a little poo pooed by some, but uh, some of the reporters, including Maggie uh, Haberman from The New York Times, who was the chief reporter for The Times on the Clinton campaign. She tweeted earlier this week that um, just her frustration that uh, the the. Clinton campaign and folks associated with the Clinton campaign and and, uh, with with this denied repeatedly and emphatically with great sort of, um, you know, self-righteousness that they weren't involved. Uh, And yet it comes comes out, you know, reportedly that Mark Elias, uh, who was uh, a lawyer associated with Clinton's campaign, you know, was involved. And so, yeah, I think we're seeing um, uh, frustration with sort of the incredulous sort of misdirection uh, that's that's been going on, like you said, not just on the right, uh, but but on the left. Um, and, you know, all of this is obscuring the fact that, um, you, you know, at its core is a is a real serious question of whether the Russian government has leverage over someone who is now sitting in the Oval Office. And so, you know, while it has all this sort of. Uh, a sense of intrigue and sort of DC game playing. Um, the question at the core, like it so often is, 
is important, which I think is why so many people get frustrated with Beltway politics and campaign games. Yeah. There's so many angles you can hit this from. One thing I, I, I believe we can take from all of this is that Russia is playing a serious game of chess and we better get it together because they're not playing right they're 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 very serious about what's going on they've thought this out and we need to get our stuff together so we're, so we're battling both sides are having all this righteous indignation about russia sure. and they're both doing the same thing right yeah. that it just it doesn't make sense and this is why people as you said they lose faith in our political system uh because it's hard to believe what folks are saying you make russia this big deal and then you find out your side was dealing with russia yeah in some way or another as well. The other right. thing that the Wash, uh, that the Wall Street Journal um, pointed out, which some people are disputing and they're saying that there's a, uh, a targeted you know, uh, effort to get uh, Mueller out of there that's really unfair. But the, the Wall Street Journal basically said they think that he should resign because part of the report, I believe, that came out in the Washington Post or maybe another outlet was that the FBI might have actually used information from this dossier in the investigation and if they in fact use some of that information in this investigation then you know that compromises their position uh some people are disputing whether it's compromised or not but wow uh you you have a politically motivated you know commissioned um report and then you have the fbi using some of this misinformation for their investigation that would be a very bad thing so we just again we have to wait and see what we do know is that Russia is 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 really trying to destroy uh, uh, the politics in this country and that we need to get it together and find some type of common ground and start being constructive. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we'll see if uh, things clear up uh, throughout the week. But Republicans have been hitting Mueller's team now for for these leaks. Uh, there are are people calling for Mueller to be fired. And if Trump does, in fact, uh, uh, remove him, then, uh, it, you know, that could, that would lead to a whole uh, other crisis. And, you know, someone who could be a central player in sort of uh, refereeing this whole thing is Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. And Senator Flake made news, made significant news this last week when he announced uh, that he would retire, that he won't seek uh, his party's nomination to to run again for his Senate seat, uh, and obviously what he won't be running for his Senate seat. Um, in his uh, speech on the Senate floor, that got a lot of a lot of attention. Uh, I just want to read a bit from this. Senator Flake said, "The principles that underlie our politics, the values of our founding, are too vital to our identity." and to our survival to allow them to be compromised by the requirements of politics, because politics can make us silent when we should speak, and silence can equal complicity. I have children and grandchildren to answer to, and so, Mr. President, I will not be complicit or silent. He went on to lay out in, in pretty um, straightforward, bold detail how he felt um, our values were being undermined and our democracy was being undermined uh, quite explicitly by President Trump. Um, and he said that he wanted to free himself from the strictures of running from office and the political sort of calculations that would require so that he could sort of follow his conscience in his last, uh, you know, in his last couple of years uh, in the Senate. 
Um, now, some of the critiques of this have been that, you know, Flake looked at the polls, realized he couldn't win nomination. And so he's trying to sort of uh, pretend he's making a bold step, but actually uh, he, he's just copping out from what would be a, a tough race. Um, but uh, it, it was a pretty uh, similar to McCain in earlier uh, moments this year. Um, his fellow senator from Arizona uh, made made quite a splash with this speech. He did. Uh, I agree with several of his remarks. Uh, one of his quotes was that reckless, outrageous and undignified behavior has become excused and countenanced as telling it like it is when it is really just reckless, outrageous and undignified. Couldn't yeah. be more true. So he, he made yeah. a very strong speech. He made some really strong points. I have a little bit of pushback, though. And part of it comes from something that Roland Martin said today, and I think I'm siding with him a bit on this, is why quit then, right? Yeah. I, I don't see, even with him and Corker, uh, it gives you some independence while you're still there. I get that part. right? But why not go out fighting, right? Why not try right. to come back and try to make your point and go to your people in Arizona and tell them why what you're doing is so important? Yeah, you might lose, but if it's really all about um, making the discourse better, making our politics better, and making sure the principles that we're supposed to be living by and that uh, have served this country well, if it's really about supporting those and, and representing those things, then why quit? Uh, why yeah. not keep pushing? Why not inspire others from seeing you being willing to say, you know what, I might lose, but they're not going to take me out. I believe in this so much that I'm going to fight to the end until the voters tell me that I'm not the one to be here. I think that'd be a little more dignified stance, but hey, I don't know the the full. I don't know the uh, complete right. circumstances <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. But I think that commentary that Roland Martin brought up, I believe it was on one of the um, more Sunday morning shows. Right. There's something to that. Uh, I don't see why you yeah. quit if if it's really just a principled stance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that. I, I think part of what I'll be looking for is um, the 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 role that he plays in in the election race for his seat and so you know if uh you know a a far right sort of a trumpian sort of candidate wins the republican nomination is is flake willing to say look i have some strong disagreements with the with the democrat but the the democrat who's likely to win the nomination is is more of a centrist uh um, uh, uh, and if it indeed turns out that way, you know, it'll be interesting. In other words, you know, does he try to be a, a kingmaker in the race in a way that he couldn't be if, uh, if, if he ran the nomination sort of lost and sort of his ideas were taken to be, you know, defeated in the primary, at least at, mm. at, at this point, he gets a step, he gets a step back a little bit, but, but I, I, I see, I see the critique. I think the other thing I'll be looking for is, uh, Again, Will Flake, Corker, McCain, uh, you know, I think Sass to a lesser extent, will they do more than talk? And what kind of, you know, b between the four of them, they could really provide something of a fulcrum uh, in the Senate to uh, uh, to, to uh, allow some things to come up for votes that wouldn't come up otherwise, to allow for some investigations to take place that wouldn't happen otherwise. Uh but if all they're going to do is talk and let sort of the Republican agenda, uh, the policy agenda they support move forward uh, under this president that they think is undermining our values, um, th then that's that's going to, I think, undermine Flake's speech. And 
what McCain has done and, and what Corker has said. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And me and my cousin Jermaine were, were going back and forth on this the other day. I think it's great to come out and say all the, the you know, to expose all the things that Trump is doing to this country that are just destructive. But there's been opportunities to to slow him down for a while. This is the first year. And so right. from some of those more moderate Republicans, yeah, I hear them talking, but there's been there's been chances for them to, to slow this down. And he you know, not that he's accomplished much already, but they could really make sure and, and push their weight around if they wanted to. And they haven't necessarily done that. Um, we've talked about Ben Sass before. We we appreciate some of the things he's doing, but I think there's some legitimate criticism that, yeah, but you have gone along with him on some things you probably shouldn't have. So that's right. a question yeah. they have, have to answer. I'm not one of those people that's going to say, well, if you didn't do it from the beginning, I don't care what you do now. No, get it right, right? Sometimes right. it takes yeah. longer for people to get it right than others. Uh, sometimes you make mistakes early on. As long as you get it right, I can respect you getting it right. I'm not going to hold you to it. There's a saying that, especially in the law, the, the law never forces you to make the same mistake twice. And so I'm not going to hold people, hold people to making the same mistake twice, but it's time to step up. They, there are Republicans who get it, but I need you, I need you to get it with your vote. I need you to get it yeah, with, right. you know, getting on, getting, getting in front of the people and explaining this and saying, even if it means my career being over, I came here to do the right thing. And I'm um, going to make sure that regardless of what happens, that, I'm going to take principal votes and principal stand. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess the other thing I'd say in Flake's defense is, you know, running the Senate campaign is like a, a you know, nowadays it's, if he was going to really make a go for it, for his seat, uh, it would have been, uh, he would have been having to fundraise every day. He would have been using other people's money to, to spend millions and millions on a campaign and, you know, there, there is some, some sense if he looked at the numbers and, you know, we can look at the numbers and see that this, this man was not going to win the Republican nomination. Uh, so, so, you know, may, maybe it was just like, why, why waste all the time of, of campaign? Why, why waste people's money? Why waste my money to, to, to do something that isn't going to uh, go anywhere when, you, you know, there is some real validity to saying, instead of focusing on a, on trying to win a primary that I know I'm going to lose, um, I'm going to focus a hundred percent on my job as a Senator. And, uh, frankly, there are probably, there are probably a few, few other senators who should, who should make that call too. But, uh, uh, I, I want to move on because there are two kind of democratic responses to this, uh, to Jeff Flake's speech. Um, the first is Tom Perez's, uh, the chair of the DNC, um, who, who basically shared a statement that said, uh, uh, Flake has voted with Trump 91% of the time. Uh, he's, you know, he's just as bad um, and uh, offered no sort of, no sort of affirmation of any of Flake's words, no, no invitation to the voters who are going to be voting for who will replace Jeff Flake that, you know, if you agree with Jeff Flake's critique of President Trump, then you need to elect a Democrat to replace him. Instead, it was this kind of like very bitter. Someone said it was, you know, taking the low road, uh, kind of kicking Flake on his way out when, you know, you would think a party that, you know, is out of power just about everywhere has a has a leading Republican critiquing the head of his own party, you'd say, yeah, you're right. Let's, well, why don't you come be a good Democrat too? Instead, uh, you know, Tom, Pre Tom Perez put out 
uh, you know, a statement that I think probably distanced uh, the DNC from a lot of a lot of folks who who might be moved by Jeff Flake's statement to to give the other party a look. Uh, yeah, Perez it, is in a tough situation right now. So Perez, it, um, you know, unfortunately, when when you kind of get, and I'm not gonna say he's desperate, but but he's he's in a real tough situation, and you uh, a lot of times when you're in that position, you start preaching to the choir. And let's yeah. be honest, this is politics as usual. That's what most Democrats are going to want to hear. Uh, they want it. They want to. They want you to go hard at that. Until, instead of being nuanced and really evaluating the situation about and about how this can get worse. And he's in a political yeah. position, right? He's he's not there to necessarily uh, uh, give a, a great speech that 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 um, supports every angle, right? He he's he's the political side of, of what we're talking about. He's in the party, you know, he's in the position that's more about partisanship than anything else. So it's understandable, but that's, it's not helpful. And so I agree right. with you on that. So the other democratic response is by this Senator Chris Coons, who really has, you know, uh, he wrote in the, uh, a really solid uh, article for the Atlantic about how democratic values aren't secular values. And he spoke as a Christian about, uh, how uh, 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 his faith speaks to uh, uh, so some of the positions that he holds in the Senate and, and some of the positions of the Democratic Party. And then he he writes in the New York Times in an op-ed called uh, with the title, Why Jeff Flake's Exit Should Scare Democrats. Uh, and he he writes about how he disagreed on Jeff Flake on a whole number of issues, but, quote, uh, I consider him an honorable man, a loyal friend, and a valued colleague. His retirement is deeply troubling to me because he re re he represents a principled and patriotic Republican Party, one that has long championed strong American leadership around the world, and one I now fear is falling apart. To to me, that is that, that is not only um, a message of of integrity and trying to speak to the better angels of even those uh, who you disagree with politically but it's also the the politically mostly the most astute response uh, the most astute response which is to say look republicans your party's falling apart why why don't you join why don't you join us and push back some of the extremism in your party and then maybe you could remake your party after after we're done crushing them <laughs> but but uh it, it, this op-ed really gave me a, a, a lot of uh it really encouraged me that a democratic senator at this point would put uh his would, would put his name behind something that was acknowledging the good in the other party um uh, e even with the political calculations that that go go uh, you know behind something like this yeah he didn't have to do this he didn't have to make right. a statement that complimented someone who he said in the article was somebody who he disagreed with the majority of the time i think that speaks mm -hmm. to his character i think that speaks to how he views the discourse and the political landscape as something we all share. And, and you, and people seem to miss that to some point we share this landscape and I may disagree with you, but if if it's coming from the right place, once again, then I can appreciate what you're doing. And that's what I got from what he was saying. One of his quotes was uh, that Flake's retirement is deeply troubling to me because he represents a principled and patriotic Republic party one that has long tra championed strong American leadership around the world and one that I fear is falling apart. Um, these are things that matter. He knows that he yeah. can get somebody from the Republican Party or someone from the left, or someone from the right, excuse me, who is much worse than Flake. 
Uh, and right. so yeah. <laughs> it's important to point that out to the American people that look, it can get worse. And maybe I said, I don't agree with this guy, or I said some negative things about him, but I appreciate that he does have a level of consistency, a level of principle that we need in the public square. Yeah. His, the closing words of, of the, the op-ed referring to Flake McCain and Corker, who, who we've already, you know, who we've talked about all three of them in this episode, he said, uh, we should heed their warnings, challenge them to turn their words into action and ask how we can do the same. And, and that's just, uh, that's a real strong message I, I'd advise. So Chris Coons is a Harvard Div grad. Um, I disagree with him on some stuff. I, I think he, uh, um, some of his questioning and Senate hearings around religious freedom issues. I think we, we probably take a, a bit of a different approach there, but Chris Coons is definitely someone, someone folks, uh, should watch. Um, uh, so, so we have, we have, uh, one more, uh, uh, issue to discuss, but before we get to uh, something else that's going on the set in the Senate, what we want to do this episode was just, uh, just just this last week at Wheaton, I was asked kind of what commentators I listen to and what journalists I respect. And I know, Justin, you get the same questions all the time. So we were thinking, why don't we just share, you know, three of our um, three of our favorite commentators that we listen to? Uh, J Justin, do you have any um, any any sort of uh, additional s setup, uh, uh, kind of how you want this to be helpful for folks? Yeah, just based off what I said last week, which was that Christians um, should reward those commentators who are thoughtful, uh, intellectually yeah. honest and aspirational. Uh, if we want our public discourse to get any better, uh, we have to embrace the thinkers who are being constructive, uh, the ones who are willing uh, to admit that everything isn't the other side's fault and those who yeah. are thinking past the moment. Sometimes we get so caught up in the moment and so caught up in, in what Trump just said that we don't see the big picture. We don't see the principles that transcend what is going on in the uh, immediate moment. And so there are some the, the people, the reader, the I'm sorry, the writers and the commentators that I like to read are able to do that. They're able to see the bigger picture. Um, you know, don't just listen to people who who feed your rage. Uh, right. Don't just listen yeah. to those, you know, listen to people who critique you. How yeah. I, that's something that just not does not happen. Listen to the people who t critique you and critique your side and challenge you. Uh, that's yeah. always important. So if you don't have anybody, uh, if you don't listen to or you don't read anyone who's on the opposite side of the political or ideological spe spectrum, that's a problem. And so we'll name some people here that that I think have mixed, you know, are mixed on the ideological side of it, but that we can appreciate uh, in general. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's kick it off. Justin, why don't you go first? So uh, uh, name the first of your three favorite commentators. Sure. Uh, the first one is probably a couple ticks to the left, a few ticks to the left of where I am. But I appreciate his commentary. And that is Van Jones. Uh, many yeah. of you know uh, Van Jones as a CN, uh, CNN political contributor. Uh, he's also an attorney. He's an author. Uh, he was a special advisor for green jobs for the Obama administration, and he's currently the president of Dream Corps, uh, which is a social justice organization. Uh, Van Jones actually has a new book called Beyond the Messy Truth, which exposes the hypocrisy on both sides of the political divide and points out a way uh, out of the tribalism that is really tearing apart 
uh, America. And, and Van Jones to me is number one. Again, he's always thoughtful. Uh, he's he's willing to admit when he's wrong. He's willing to admit when progressives are wrong. And I, I just appreciate what he brings to the conversation. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he has to say, but I do appreciate what he brings. Uh, here's a quote yeah. where he's actually I have one quote where he's actually uh, critiquing progressives. And he says this. He says, too many of us can deconstruct everything, but can't reconstruct anything and make it work. Too hmm. many of us uh, know how to, to run a protest against the adults on our campus, but don't know how to run a program. That is a yeah. real critique. And those yeah, are the yeah, type yeah. of things that I appreciate from people like Van Jones. Yeah, yeah. Van, uh, so Van was, uh, Van and I were at the White House together and he came over to meet with uh, faith-based office to talk about green jobs. And uh, I don't know if I've ever been in a meeting with, you know, government officials, like bureaucrats um, that I left inspired, you know, I was, I was just like pumped up after, <laughs> after that meeting. I mean, the, the man is just a ball of creative aspirational energy. He's, he's something else to be, to be sure. And his work on CNN has been great. Um, I think my first columnist, so I have, Two of my three columnists actually just got new jobs, which is very exciting. Uh, it, 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 I feel like it validates my my taste a little. <laughs> uh, but the first is uh, Jane Coaston. Jane Coaston has written. Uh, she was at MTV News. She's written for New York Times Magazine. And uh, she was just named uh, the senior political reporter for Vox. And so Vox is really sort of hiring a bunch of great talent. And Jane is the latest. Jane is someone, uh, I don't know much about her background, but you you read her writing and you know this is someone with firm convictions, but who is constantly listening in on other streams of conversation that is uh, able to surprise readers, maybe even surprise herself sometimes with where she lands on an issue. Um, and I've just really appreciated not just reading her writing, but uh, being able to follow her on social media. Um, she wrote an article for New York Times Magazine uh, about virtue signaling and how we just don't believe one another anymore, which uh, is like textbook Jane Coaston for me because it was uh, a creative take cl that clearly showed that she was listening in on sort of the right-wing critiques of virtue signaling. And she she had things to affirm in that conversation and things to kind of nuance from, you know, I think how, how uh, definitive uh, some of the conservative conversation about virtue signaling uh, can be and, and what that is and what it means. And so Jane Coaston, she should be writing for Vox uh, uh, pretty regularly soon. Uh, she, she just got appointed, again, senior political uh, writer for, um, for Vox last week. And so hopefully she'll get started up soon. Wow, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah. I'll be looking, looking out for some of that, that, that writing. Uh, the next, my second person is gonna be uh, Damon Linker. Uh, mm. Damon Linker is a senior correspondent uh, for The Week, a great writer. Uh, he was formerly a contributing editor at the New Republic. Uh, he's a liberal commentator, commentator uh, who was formerly, I believe, a social conservative. He he actually used to uh, be an editor at First Things. Uh, he okay. was also a speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani. Uh, again, what sticks out to me about Damon Linker as he writes, and I read him almost every week, is his honesty. He will take 
can social conservatives who he used to be, he will take them to task when they need to be taken to task. I don't always yeah. agree with his, his commentary, but it's principled. And I, I, I know he believes what he's saying. And at right. the same time, yeah. he will take secular progressives to task. He's more yeah. liberal than he is uh, progressive. And he's helped me understand the difference between the two. Uh, but mm-hmm. always honest, always a deep thinker in writing about the issues that really matter. And here's a quote uh, from one of his more recent um, one of his more recent articles. He says, yes, many Republicans are ideological and the party has indeed been moving to the left to the right in recent years. But the truth is that Democrats have simultaneously been moving to the left and, and doing so with greater unity and on some issues more rapidly than Republicans have been moving to the right. So. Yeah. Even through all that's going on with Trump, and he certainly uh, goes in on Trump when need be, he also goes in on uh, liberal or progressive reaction to Trump. And sometimes when they react in kind, uh, he just he just makes sure that he's keeping people honest. I think if if you listen to someone like him, he is going to keep you honest. Again, you don't have to agree with all these people. You don't have to agree with everyone you read, but you should be reading people who challenge you. And Damon Linker, Linker on a daily basis challenges me, challenges his party, but also those on the other side. But also he has an appreciation uh, for people on the other side, good writers, and was willing to give them credit and admit if he missed something. That right. doesn't happen too often, especially when you're playing a zero sum game or you're keeping you're keeping points. You don't ever want to let, let in that you may have lost a point or that yeah. you got something <laughs> right. wrong. But. I think it's key to be able to do that. And it's actually helpful for the discourse and those who are reading uh, his work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he, he wrote uh, in back in 2016, he wrote a column, our age of dis uh, our age of political discontent. And then more recently he wrote a column, the dangers of the great American unchurching both for the week. And uh, they're just, they're just columns. I, I keep returning back to, I, I think he's, he's a really important voice. Um, but my my second commentator is a more uh co- conventional i i guess pick and that is you know David Brooks and uh, let me let me tell you why i appreciate David Brooks uh, he made uh uh an intentional uh uh turn in his columns over the last few years um because he recognized that at the at the root of so many of our political problems are problems of moral and civic character. Um, And uh, to have someone writing from a perch like he has at the New York Times, that is not just focusing on sort of the X's and O's of politics, though he he will do that. And not just someone who's focusing on sort of, uh, you know, CBO reports and, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, tables. Uh, uh, he's uh, he is really getting at something that few writers are talking about, but that is at the root of so many of uh, so, so much of how our politics plays out. Um, and I'm just I'm just grateful for him uh, bringing bringing that perspective uh, uh, and applying a sort of moral understanding to to the political and social. Uh, challenges we face today. I I don't always agree, you know, again, and you know, don't always agree with everything he writes. Um, but if, if more people were thinking, uh, uh, thinking, uh, about issues, uh, 
outside of the outside of just the data um as important as the data is um uh i i think um we'd have a more well-rounded public debate uh and so uh, i i appreciate david brooks for that i agree with you on that one and, and thought about placing him on my list uh for one because of a book he wrote called the road to character uh, yes. For all those listening, if you have not read The Road to Character, you need to read it immediately. He basically goes through um, the lives of several uh, uh, very famous uh, Americans who lived uh, very principled lives, even though, you know, they all had their issues. But he goes through these lives to show how living with character is the best way to go about it. And I mean, that I've read it twice. Uh, it was a yeah. really good book. He did an excellent job. And he, as you pointed out, he's become somewhat of a moralist. And we yeah. don't have a lot of those. So he, he's done it without being self-righteous, right? I don't right. I don't think he comes from a self-righteous point of view, but he does point out in all these things going on. And it's like I said before, the best writers can step outside of the moment. And so he transcends and at least attempts to transcend the moment to see the bigger principles and morals involved in what's going on. And that's mm. one of the main reasons that I like uh, what David Brooks does. Again, don't agree with him all the time. I know that he got a lot of criticism um, for his uh, for his criticism of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book Between the World and Me, uh, right. where he basically came out and said, "Look, I thought this was a book without hope," and he had several different issues with it. One, of, you know, I thought some of that criticism was unfair. I don't know that I agreed with the entire article, but you know, a lot of liberal folks came out and said, "Well, how could he criticize this? How could he criticize that?" And I right. never understand that. Number yeah. one, we all know that Ta-Nehisi Coates is a brilliant writer. Right. He is yep. a brilliant writer. But number one, he's not infallible. Number right. two, David Brooks treated him like a peer. Yes. And that's what he's right. supposed to do. Right. Yes. No. Why, why would he not? He would be doing him a disservice by treating him not like he's not a peer. And I think there's some there's some soft bigotry going to into some of the people who defend this. Like he should never be able to criticize a black writer. That's ridiculous. James Baldwin, right. Martin Luther King, all those people got criticized and they did not avoid criticism from white people or whoever, because they were tight with what they were doing. Uh, right. So I never understand the idea that a white writer can't criticize a black writer. No, there, he treated him like a peer. He, he acknowledged that he's a great writer. And by doing that, he can still have a critique. So I wasn't mad about that. I didn't necessarily agree with the entire thing, but I thought it was thoughtful. And I do, I did think some of that book could have used a little, a little more hope. So very good choice. I'm going to go down to my third one. Uh, and this is a writer who, you know, has really challenged me because there is some distance on uh, several issues. But Ross Douthit, uh, who is a New York Times op-ed columnist who writes about uh, politics, he writes about religion, moral values, and higher education. He's actually a conservative Catholic, is a very strong writer. Uh, there, yeah. Whether you agree with him or not, there are very few people out there that can write like he writes which is why he can be a conservative and be at the New York Times. Uh, he's, yeah. he's uh, you know, quite, uh, quite a bit more conservative than David Brooks, and he does not hold anything back. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate uh, his ability to spar with some of the strongest progressive writers, with some of the strongest liberal writers. Ross Douthat always holds his own, and I've seen him lose very, <laughs> very few of those back and forth because he, he, he's, a, he's a thinker. Um, and really tries to apply policy the right way. Now, I don't necessarily agree with some of his takes. I think they're a little bit too uh, far right, but I've seen growth 
and I've seen honesty and I've seen the ability to hear other writers and consider what they're saying and say, you know what? I got to go back and change that. I've seen a lot of writers who've gone back and forth with him who at the end of the day had to be intellectually dishonest because they didn't know how to respond. Ross Douthat, if you don't read his articles in the New York Times, you should. He usually has an article come out every Sunday and it will challenge you if nothing else. Uh, Most I'm guessing most of the conservatives that listen to us already know about him. But if you are, if you consider yourself more progressive or liberal, I would recommend listening to what he has to say. He had he had a great book as well called Bad Religion how we became a nation of heretics. And I want to give you a, a, a brief quote from that book. And Douthat said this, he said, many of the over overlapping crises in American life from our foreign policy disasters to the housing bubble, to the rate of out of wedlock births can be traced to the impulse to emphasize one particular element of traditional Christianity, one insight, one doctrine, one teaching or tradition at the expense of all others. The goal is always progress, a belief system that's simpler or more reasonable, more authentic or more up to date. Yet the results often vindicate the older Christian synthesis. Heresy sets out to be simpler and more appealing and more rational, but it often ends up being more extreme. Ross Douthat. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. I've appreciated his. uh his writing to a great, a great deal with all, uh, you know, obviously don't agree with him on everything, but, uh, but he's, he's really, especially his, um, I've appreciated his challenging of libertarian, uh, aspects of the Republican party. And, um, I think it's his Catholicism that, uh, you know, he, he's part of the reformicon movement that, um, it really sees it's a reason of existence to be uh, how can the government through through free market means but support and strengthen families and that's one of the reasons why uh though she comes from a very different uh uh in some ways a very different perspective in other ways she's catholic um she supports she's she's a pro family writer and she was just named uh columnist for the Washington Post she must be I think I doubt that there's been a younger columnist for the Washington Post, and that is Liz Brunig. And um, I have followed Liz for years now. I followed her when she was, I forget what piece it was, but she wrote something for the week um, that caught my attention. And I just thought, wow, I need to follow this voice. Um, I've had the opportunity to spend a, a bit of time with with Liz. Um, Liz and I did an event together at uh, Acton University earlier this year, and now I'm just I'm very excited that, that not just uh, you know I'll be able to read her column, but that she's going to be exposed to um, you know millions of people through her new her new uh, her, her new position at Washington Post. And Liz is just someone who uh, writes from. Uh, uh, steeped in theology she's an expert on augustine um and you know, uh it, i think very helpfully um uh, open about family life and balancing work family uh work family you know having a work family balance um uh she really is uh insistent on policies that um that truly uh, help the poor that truly support all kinds of uh, uh, families in a robust way. She's not shy about 
her conviction that government has a role there. Uh, but because of her background in theology, because of the ways that her, her faith motivates some, some views that, um, are, are not always in step with any particular political ideology. She's always a great read. I always feel, uh, you know, expanded after reading her. And again, it's just going to be great to have her at the post. And so that's my, that's my third, uh, my third commentator, uh, Liz Brunig with the Washington Post. That's awesome, man. And I would also say we could probably do another one of these episodes. This is not an exhaustive list. There are several other people that could have easily made this list. You know, we could send out honorable mention to Nia Malika Henderson, uh, Ryan Salam, um, Alan Noble, folks like that. Uh, this is from far from exhaustive, but we did want to point out a few folks who we think you should follow. And as, as, uh, church politics goes on, I'm sure we will point out more and more, but those are really commentators and op-ed writers that we thought would be uh, good for you guys to follow. Yeah. Well, Justin, I, I have one thing I wanted to sort of a shout out I wanted to give at the end of this episode. And that is last week, Senator Sherrod Brown and Michael Bennett, uh, Sherrod Brown being a Democrat from Ohio, Michael Bennett being a Democrat from Colorado, released a child allowance proposal today, a child tax credit um, that uh, researchers that, you know, to to be clear, these are researchers that Bennett and and Brown have uh, you know allowed to analyze the bill. Um, uh, but uh, s some researchers believe that the proposal would cut child poverty in half, and the the proposal um, is basically an allowance for uh, children uh, uh, for for parents with children to receive uh, um, a pre pretty significant. Funds so children between the ages of zero and five would get three hundred dollars per month. The children between the ages of six and eighteen would get two hundred fifty dollars per month. Um, and now benefits would phase out at a rate of five percent for earnings over seventy five thousand dollars for single taxpayers and one hundred ten thousand dollars for married taxpayers. But but this is this is an exciting proposal at a time when uh, you know fr frankly there's been a bit of a uh, I haven't heard many exciting ideas coming out from either side of the aisle, uh, particularly those focused on uh, supporting families, that this is exactly the kind of idea that um, that, that I, I think uh, is worth discussing, worth advocating for. Uh, Senator Marco Rubio was also celebrating earlier this week um, that his child, uh, there was progress made um, uh, with his longtime support for a, a child tax credit. Uh, and so on both sides of the aisle, you have, uh, I think, a recognition that um, that there is a tax on families in this country, that there is uh, a, a marriage tax that uh, families with children are sometimes disincentivized um, uh, in in this country. The, the last thing I'll point out, Justin, is Matt Brunig um, uh, analyzed the bill, and he had a very interesting suggestion um, which was he he just simply critiqued the ch that um he he said he was he was you know pretty pretty um happy with the bennett uh, uh w w with the bennett brown proposal but he had some some significant tweaks and one of them was he suggested the child allowance should not phase out and the reason he gave was that the purpose of a child allowance and I'm quoting him here the purpose of a child allowance among other things is to ensure that when all families have children their disposable incomes increase all else equal 
This makes sure that mm. having a child does not dramatically reduce their standard of living and so that they remain at least somewhat on par with similarly situated adults who do not have children. In other words, he's saying the child allowance isn't um, it is is part of building a society where um, where we truly support families, where starting a family is not does not mean that you're um taking as much of a step back financially. And, and so, um, and so again, Bennett Brown proposal was released this last week. I hope folks will check it out. Vox has a very good article on it. Matt Brunig has very good critiques of it. I'm sure there will be conservative critiques of the, uh, of the legislation, but uh, this is a conversation we need to be having in this country, which is, you know, what does it look like uh, to support families and i feel like that's a conversation that that both sides of the aisle could play uh uh have something to uh provide look here man when somebody says that a particular policy could wipe out almost half of child poverty it's worth paying attention to right so that's the first thing i want to say this is worth us looking into worth seeing if it's it's if it's real again the child child tax credit is not just something that democrats are talking about you have the reformacons you have marco rubio who are talking about these credits, maybe in different ways, but there's certainly an opportunity here for us to have some bipartisan uh, cooperation. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to see them get to that. I also say this, though. So many of the dynamics in today's society make family life tough to achieve yeah. uh, from student loan, from the student loan crisis, the economic crisis in general, uh, health care costs, child care costs. Real estate. And this is a yeah. pro-family policy. Yes. Right. This is a plainly pro pro family policy. I like pro family policy. Uh, don't make it harder on people having families. Uh, and that's that's not to take anything away from those who don't want to have families or that don't have them. Don't make it harder on them either. But as you said, there is a tax on having kids. And so many of my friends, a lot of millennials say, man, it's just really expensive. I haven't even paid off my loans. I haven't done this. Right. You know, I, I can barely. Yeah you know, afford to, to live the life that I'm trying to live now. How can I include children in that? Yeah. It shouldn't be that way. And we have to make sure that our policy is mindful of family issues and the importance that families have in America. I've said this before. We cannot have a strong country if we don't have strong families. That's right. uh, because fr strong families create strong communities and strong communities create a strong country. So we should be uh, supporting this type of policy. Make sure we get it right because yeah. you got to get the details right. But this is headed in the right direction, and I hope it gets a strong look. Yeah. Well, Justin, that's all I had for this week. Uh, I, I'm just proud. You know, I made it through a whole episode without pointing out that the Buffalo Bills are five and two. But, you know, you know, I'm just nah, I, I just, you know, I just lost that record. Yeah. Right. <laughs> is there is there anything you wanted to uh, anything you want to close out the episode with? Not really. Uh, we will see you next week. I, I, like I said, check out those writers that yeah. we mentioned today and those commentators we mentioned today. Check them out. Send us a note to uh, uh, for our Twitter handle is at church politics. Let us know what you think. Yeah, send send us some of your favorite commentators. And and we, I think, Justin, you're right. I, I think there are a lot of folks I left out, too. So maybe we'll have to do this again sometime soon. Love to. All right. Thanks, folks. This is the Church Politics Podcast. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.
The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%. APR, 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 30. This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.